Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. My time in Madagascar had come to an end and it really had been a lifetime within a lifetime. As I think about it further, the core message that I'd learned really was relating to the biblical paradox, lose yourself to find yourself. And Madagascar had really taught me that. However, that lesson had to make contact with the real world. And my experience there was not what you might call the real world, simply because I was in an environment that just wouldn't exist outside. It wouldn't exist when I returned home whatsoever. I'd started the experience in Madagascar with a fairly self-centered outlook. What's in it for me? Is it worth my while to go over there? But I don't really castigate myself for having that attitude at the time. I think it's fairly normal to think about things like that. But I'd moved on from that while I was there. But I had to come back home in an entirely into an entirely new environment, an environment that was very different. And I remember speaking with an American couple who lived in Madagascar. They weren't members of the church. They were part of the Peace Corps movement and they had us over for dinner every now and again. And, and they actually cautioned me about what it would be like going home, going from Madagascar, a third world country, back to the Western world, back home where I'd grown up and these, these different worlds. And they cautioned me that it might actually be more difficult to return home and make that adaptation than it had been to make the initial adaptation of going from home to Madagascar. And as I arrived home, it was really a very understated experience. I was picked up from the airport, not by a throng of people who had missed me, but by my just my mum and my younger sister, Laura, who I was very glad to see. But suffice it to say, there wasn't a great crowd of people there like you see on some of these missionary homecoming videos in Utah. It was a very understated affair, but that was okay. There was no problem with that whatsoever. On the way home, I was hit with some fairly murky details about the guy who had named his son after me, my, my friend who I spent a lot of time with before my mission. He'd become entangled with some pretty unsavory stuff. So I was brought crashing down to earth. And on the way home, my sister Laura had us go and visit a guy at church who had arrived from the States while I'd been in Madagascar called Mike. And Mike lived in, in Harrogate, our hometown, with his wife, Julie, and had been a huge support to my sister while I was gone. And so we went to see Mike, and I was at the time thinking, why are we going to see this guy? Like, it's wonderful that he's been able to support my sister while I've been away and everything else. 
but I didn't know really what to what to say when when we met. So so it was a fairly sterile conversation, and I was wondering why why we're here when I've just literally come back from Madagascar. But I will come back to Mike later. He does he does feature later. It's just we we would yet have plenty to talk about, but at that point there wasn't much to talk about. And by the time we made it home, I remember I was still officially a missionary and I remember going back home and feeling like a fish out of water at the dinner table. I was sat down at the dinner table and my mum and dad were there, my younger sister, and we were going to bless the food as is customary at the beginning of a meal in, in our family. And it hit me just then that I was not going to speak Malagasy again, not in the, the regular course of events. Of course, I would keep in touch with some people in Madagascar, but I had no reason to speak that language in the regular course of my activities. And it was really quite a profound realization. And after dinner, we actually went to the state president's house for my release as a missionary. And I remember talking to him about the experience and relaying parts of the journey to him. And as he released me from my missionary calling, he specifically said that the mantle of missionary would be removed from me or would slide from me just like Elijah's mantle as prophet slid from him as spoken about in the Old Testament as Elijah ascended into heaven as it goes. And I remember I really felt like that. I really felt that that sliding of the mantle from my shoulders and really that I was no longer a missionary. And it was quite a profound feeling that I didn't have a specific identity at that point. I'd spent two years being a missionary and pouring everything into that, pouring everything into learning the language, teaching people, connecting with people and being within a structure. And the structure was powerful. There was real power in that structure because it was a very good structure in ensuring mutual support. We were very mutually supportive of each other as missionaries. And there was almost an inbuilt brotherhood there. Not that everybody got along and that everybody was best friends, not by any means, but it was, it was easy to have friends there and have allies there on the basis of common values and common interests. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was in this big, wide world on my own and that nobody around me would understand anything about Madagascar. They wouldn't understand the sights, the sounds, the smells, the experiences, the idiosyncrasies of the place whatsoever. As for the town itself, as for Harrogate itself, the, the town that I was returning to where my parents lived, it felt empty. It really, really did feel empty. It just wasn't like how I'd remembered it before I left. And part of that, of course, would have been due to my changing perception. But another side of it was the beginning, if you like, of the death of the high street. So there was much more e-commerce happening. So just walking around town, things were a lot quieter than they had been before. And in some respects, it felt, this might sound a bit dramatic, but it felt akin to that awful 
film Return to Oz, where Dorothy returns to Oz and finds that the yellow brick road has been broken up and familiar faces are absent and the proverbial lunatics have taken over the asylum and everything else. And it felt a little bit like that when, when I returned to Harrogate. Everything just seemed very jaded at least. Not that the lunatics had, had taken over the asylum, but, but everything just felt very jaded and very dated and almost perennial. It, it didn't feel, it felt like everything had changed, but nothing had changed. And the general feel that I had was that things were in stark contrast to the excitement and hubbub around my departure. And I have to say, at this point, I was really counting my lucky stars that I hadn't stayed when I thought before going to Madagascar that I should stay because why would I want to go? Because I had everything here in Harrogate and life was so great. And it does, to a certain extent, chill me to think what life might have been like if I'd stayed, what I would have, certainly what I would have missed out on from having gone to Madagascar and had those experiences as a missionary, but also the, the natural decline of things in a sleepy town like Harrogate. I do remember going into town with my younger sister and she was telling me about the new bands that had come out while I'd been away, the killers, Keane, Franz Ferdinand, all these folks. And we were in this CD shop and I was looking around and I was thinking, hmm, what, what should I go with here? What should I, what should I buy? And none of the, none of the new names were, were doing it for me at that particular time. And so I ended up walking out of this, of this CD shop with one single album. And it was actually the deluxe edition of Who's Next by The Who which was released in the 1970s. And that was sufficient for me at that particular time. It, it served as good inspiration for me as I was getting back into playing the bass guitar after a two year break because John Entwistle was a phenomenal bass player. So that, that was sufficient for me. I, I wasn't diving into the, the new music that had been released, although I am a big fan of The Killers now and have seen them live, which was quite fantastic. One of the inevitable things about coming home from a mission is the homecoming talk. And growing up in the church, you would see mission, returning missionaries who'd come home on the stand giving their homecoming talk. And you would imagine as a youngster what you might say when you're in that position, when you've just come back from this two-year experience being a, a very different person, having had all these experiences, what would you say or what might you say? I didn't know how to prepare for that. I didn't know how to prepare to give that talk whatsoever. And I was in two minds. One mind was I just spend a full afternoon rifling through emails home, journal entries, photos, and cramming everything in that I possibly could say about that experience in 20 minutes and doing it very rationally and very deliberately in that fashion. The other mind that I had was to be spontaneous and that was the mind that won out. So rather than fretting about including every detail about the experience, I actually decided that instead I was going to exercise a bit of faith and 
I was going to go with spontaneity. So I remember sitting on the stand in the chapel on the first Sunday that I was home and looking into the faces of those in the congregation. And this might sound strange, it's certainly metaphysical in, in a significant degree, but I remember looking into the faces of those in the congregation and to a very small degree at least, it felt like I could see into their souls. And I got some promptings about what it was that I should say or what it was that was salient for me to say and to share from my experiences in Madagascar. And I had a piece of paper and a pen in my pocket and I wrote down three lines on that piece of paper while I was sat on the stand. And the closing scripture that I was going to share was John 8.32, I believe is the correct reference. And ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that was really the message that I wanted to leave people thinking about, that what it was that I'd been doing over there, the biggest value that I'd been doing over there in relation to the people I was teaching, but particularly in relation to myself as well, was that as people learned these principles and actually applied them, because the learning is in the doing, they were emancipated, they were empowered in some particular way. And I remember giving this talk with literally three lines on this piece of paper and this closing scripture in John 8.32 and just, just doing it. And it was fantastic. I really wish I had some sort of recording of it so that I could look back on it now. But I just felt alive when I was giving the talk. I felt like I was being directed as to what to say. And it was an entirely intuitive experience. I even had people coming up to me afterwards in tears about how it had touched them, particularly the, the scripture that I'd shared at the end in the context of that. So that was a great experience, but I feel as though once I'd given that talk, then I really was back, back to normal life. I really wasn't a missionary anymore. I was just a regular guy, just living my life and trying to figure it all out again. And it was interesting because there was nobody around really. My friends who had been there had either moved away, they'd gone to university, or they were on missions themselves still. And it was all very quiet. My 21st birthday, which was soon after I'd returned from Madagascar, was spent with my parents, my sisters, and a few of my older sister's friends in Nando's, <laughs> which was not a particularly glamorous way to celebrate your 21st birthday. But I, again, I was happy. I had no complaints about that. It was just things were very quiet. And it was very much like a reset, so to speak, of my life at that particular point in time. I remember going to, to watch Leeds United play as well, the team that I support. And before I left for Madagascar, the place was absolutely heaving. It was full, it was bouncing. Leeds had been doing really well. And when I came back, because they had been relegated from the Premier League, we were playing Coventry City in the second tier of English football in a stadium that was three quarters full. And it just seemed entirely foreign to me. I was like, wow, where am I? <laughs> this really is like the return to Oz. But at least we won 3-0 on the day. I had changed from the, the experience in Madagascar in my views on 
material things and, and clothes in particular, I really changed my perception on the value of money and the desire to buy new clothes. And I, I still had clothes. I had clothes that I'd left behind before my mission. And, and I, I certainly wasn't going without clothes, but my older sister was particularly generous in seeing that actually, yeah, he needs some, he needs some new clobber. So she took me into town and, and bought me a load of new clothes, which was really kind of her. And that was kind of my reintroduction to, if you like, Western materialism and the idea of fashion and buying clothes that, that look nice and that are branded etc but I'd really to that point I'd really moved away from that because I saw what the value of those the monetary value of those things would mean in a place like Madagascar so I was having to readjust to that since I'd returned home I did have a girlfriend fairly soon after I returned from Madagascar as well it was somebody who I'd she was probably what you could call my closest opportunity to having a childhood sweetheart because it was somebody who I'd grown up with and it seemed like it would be the obvious choice to settle down with her and everybody around us was kind of saying that everybody at church was was nudging us in that direction and it all felt quite quite constrictive and for, for both of us and it became quite a high pressured situation and between, I would say, the October and the end of December of 2004, when I returned from Madagascar, we were in a relationship. But on the cusp of engagement, we, we decided to call it a day. And that was just after, just after Christmas 2004, probably around New Year's. And it was an interesting one because although it seemed so obvious on paper from a rational point of view it just didn't feel right and for me the the proof of that was that I felt like the weight of others expectations had been removed from my shoulders when we decided to to call it a day and so I had some sort of confirmation that that it was right to move on from that I'd come home from my mission slightly early, not massively early, but I'd come home early so that I could start university and not miss a whole year. And I remember having a question about that as well. And the question was, why am I here? <laughs> Again, it was, it was this existential thing. And I tend to, to like these questions, the why questions going back to first principles and figuring out why I'm actually doing something. And I remember being at university and the premise of going to university, as I understood it, was that you prove yourself capable intellectually and in other ways of being able to get a job, being employable. And I remember walking into the Brotherton Library at Leeds University, the biggest library, probably the most prestigious well-known library there and seeing all these people and this grand design of a library and people sat at desks looking at books and thinking why am I here do I really need to be here I've just been in Madagascar I've had all these crazy experiences and responsibilities and 
I've transformed myself in the process. Do I really need to be at university to, to prove that I'm employable? And I did consider quitting university at that point because I didn't really get it. But thankfully, I would say, I decided to stay. And I really started to get into my studies from, I would say, from the, the second half of, of my first year. I really enjoyed learning particularly about Nelson Mandela and his struggle against apartheid and apartheid's ultimate self-implosion. That, that I started to find really interesting and I could see broader application to what I was, what I was learning. There was actually another side to my studies at university and it probably lay in the fact that I was a joint honours student so I was studying history and social policy and social policy is very strongly linked with the social sciences so sociology as well and what I what I found interesting and I found this early on in that when I was drawn to particular ideas that, that I thought were quite empowering, like take communitarianism, for example, and the, the ideas of Amitai Etzioni. I was quite drawn to those ideas, this idea of communitarianism, people playing a role themselves within, you know, at a community level to provide services and support for each other, rather than it being the state. And I remember those ideas being, being frowned upon and it felt to me, especially now that I reflect on it, like the, the messages that I'd been teaching and also learning myself in Madagascar about individual sovereignty and individual empowerment were just not being taught in my academic environment whatsoever. The focus, especially in social sciences, was on systems rather than individuals. And it seemed in many respects, like individuals were mere victims, like they were simply victims of, of the system that they were in. And there is a balance to be had in, in this debate, of course, between individual autonomy and the constraints within which people make choices and have bounded choices. But certainly with some academics that I was engaged with who were teaching me, I felt as though systems were the be-all and end-all. And as I later read in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, it seemed like this socialist idea of bringing heaven down to earth, this idea that we could create, we can, we can engineer a system, a society that's going to be better for all. Um, and not necessarily, be not even that though, because when, when we got into it, some of the academics that that was dealing with was simply saying, yeah, just give, give the students everything for free, as if there was no responsibility on anybody to pay back a student loan even. So it was interesting and it was a very different approach. It was a very different philosophy and outlook to that which I'd really found empowering when I was in Madagascar. I did make my escapes because Going, going back home, there was, the, the church is very structured. It has a lot of structures. It has a lot of programs. It has something for everybody, so to speak. And so the structure that you have to deal with when you get back from your mission, unless you've got a wife 
lined up already, as I'm speaking as a male, of course, is a program called Young Single Adults. And Young Single Adults is, you would say that it's sort of like a, a social club in some respects, where it's a group of young people between ages 18 and 30, if I remember correctly, or maybe 35 or so. And there are activities put on for them and they socialize together. And when I got back, I, I, I got back into this organization and I had a look around at what that looked like in Leeds at that particular time. And it, it does change because obviously it depends on who's around, but I really wasn't, I really wasn't impressed. It maybe sounds a bit standoffish to say, but I, I wasn't impressed with what I saw. It seemed like a rerun of high school and having been where I'd been in Madagascar, I just wasn't, I wasn't into that at all. I didn't want to play that game. So I was looking for my escapes from that particular milieu. One of those escapes came in the form of a band that I was in. I did thankfully find a band to join fairly early doors who needed a bassist and they were based in Sheffield. So I would spend quite a bit of time in Sheffield with the band, which originally when I joined it was called Optimus and then became Stark. And I absolutely loved being in the band. That was fresh air to me, being able to create with other people and have that fraternity with them that I'd, I'd taken for granted or I'd come to take for granted when I was in Madagascar. And I had that to a lesser extent before I went as well. But the band was, was fresh air in that respect in terms of my creative outlet and my need for some sort of fraternity and connection with others. I also found another means of escape, so to speak, and that was in the form of a relationship that I formed with with a girl who was a few years younger than me, and she lived on the coast in the, the north of England, and quite a pleasant area, so it was wonderful being able to get in the car on a Friday evening, and I did this pretty much religiously for about a year. I'd just get in the car on a Friday evening and drive over to see her, and it was quite an intense relationship. We, we did get on very well, and there were good things about it and bad things as, as there are in, in any relationship. And we very much enjoyed spending time together and I very much enjoyed spending time at the coast. And more to the point, I enjoyed being able to escape. So a lot of it was an escape for me. And I did come to that realization that after about a year or so, I figured that we probably weren't going to go the distance in the relationship and that the primary benefit of it for me was in the outlet it gave me, the ability that I had to escape. And I had to come to terms with that. And so the relationship did end fairly abruptly. I would say there were, there were some hallmarks of the dying relationship in the lead up to that, but all told, it probably was an abrupt ending in, in the grand scheme of things, but, but I needed to face up to certain things and I needed to stop running away and really face up to life head on after Madagascar. The end of that relationship really 
brought me out of my hiding places and it meant that I had to deal with the new realities that I was facing and I do feel as though the place that I'd left to go to Madagascar was had changed it was it was different it was different when I returned there were more distractions and temptations I would say certainly on a moral basis and I had to face up to those things I had to be tested by those things so to speak and so that was what where I was I was having to face up to these things and make decisions about where I was going to go as it says in the New Testament the light of the body is the eye and what we focus on determines where we're going to go and at that particular point at the end of that relationship I had to figure out where it was that I wanted to go. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.